Well, this morning we have the joy of having one of my oldest friends in town. Uh, in 2003, I had gone to college. First class I ever went to, they said uh, King David never existed, which is so ridiculous. But, you know, I was a fool and I was like, oh, really? Um, and I used a lot of the stuff I heard at Virginia Commonwealth University in their religious studies department, which is not a, a, um, a, a Christian uh, religious studies department, right? I heard a lot of what I heard there in terms of criticism of the Bible and such as an excuse for my own sin, and I really spent time running from the Lord. I was in rebellion, living in open rebellion against God. I had changed my major. I wasn't going to go into ministry anymore, all this stuff. And uh, my parents' church hired this guy, Josh Kappas, to be the youth pastor. And I thought that my mom, you know, I, she didn't know I was floundering, but moms know. So she knew, and I think she sicked Josh on me pretty good. And he uh, was relentless with me for a couple of years. I mean, I was a fool. He had to kick me off the praise team one time. Do you remember that, Josh? Because I, I went and come to practice, and he was like, dude, you, you got you to leave the praise team. You're not showing up. So uh, he stayed with me. He discipled me, and he stayed with me. And then he left. I remember I was devastated, and God brought uh, Brad Russell, who became my mentor after that, into town like months afterwards. And so the Lord was just right on top of it. But Josh, man, what you've done for me in my spiritual life, I wouldn't be here at this church. These people wouldn't know me if not for you, brother. So thank you. I love you. And uh, I haven't even told you what he does, so... <sighs> <sighs> Josh is the, uh, I don't even know his official title, but he is the, the man in charge of Love Life USA, and they are an awesome pro-life organization. I've wanted to have him come here and talk for years, and it just hadn't worked out, and we finally get to have him come and talk. So I can't wait for him to share his heart about how to apply the gospel to this horrible situation that we see in this culture with abortion, and uh, also his heart for connecting local churches to, uh, to this fight and to getting them mobilized. So uh, Josh, come and speak to us this morning. Good morning. I want to uh, put you a little at ease. Uh, I'm sure there's always a little sense of tension when uh, you come to church and you hear that you're going to be talking about uh, such a controversial topic. And I want you to know uh, that I am not a pro-life activist. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a pastor at heart. And I'm not here today to call you to sign up for a political party or to pro-life activism, but to simply love your neighbor as you love yourselves. And uh, so I uh, will share briefly, uh, as my, Pastor Michael mentioned, and I uh, want to thank you, brother, for the invitation and for your kind words and the opportunity to speak to your people. I know that you don't take that lightly, who you allow to stand in this pulpit. Um, my son Samuel is here. Uh, my wife's name is Jenna. We'll be married for 22 years in July. Uh, we also have a daughter named Caitlin. Her, uh, she is 19, and uh, they're back at home. And uh, most of my adult life, I served in pastoral ministry. I was a student pastor for about 10 years and then planted a church in uh, 2012 and uh, was co-pastoring that church when uh, our church was introduced to this to this ministry called Love Life. Was that me? <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, I was pretty much your typical pro-life pastor where it's like, 
I don't really know what to do other than you support the Pregnancy Care Center and you, you know, you talk about Sanctity of Life Sunday and, you know, beyond that, it's like, what can we really do? And uh, my life was radically changed when I got introduced to the Ministry of Love Life. And I'll give you the 30,000-foot view of what we do. Love Life mobilizes evangelical churches to come around abortion-vulnerable families. The way that we do that is we host 40 consecutive weeks of peaceful prayer walks at local abortion clinics in 19 cities in the United States. Believe it or not, California is our fastest-growing area, and we praise God for that. We ask pastors to adopt one of those 40 weeks, and we walk their church family through a four-step process based on Nehemiah's story in Nehemiah chapter 1, 2, and 3. And those four steps are hear, pray, go, and connect. And so on the Sunday of a church's adoption week, the pastor preaches on life. We have a love life presentation. On Wednesday, the church collectively prays and fasts for the issues of abortion and surrounding abortion. Then on Saturday, we have a prayer walk at the local abortion clinic. For so many people, the issue of abortion is a distant political issue. And so we do prayer walks at abortion clinics so that people can see that this is an issue that affects our neighbors. It affects everyday people in our communities where we live. And these are the only places where we can point to and say we know when and where broken and hurting people are showing up and innocent human beings are scheduled to die. And so it's just reasonable for Christians to be there offering the hope of the gospel and the help of the church. And so we have a code of conduct. We don't allow people to interact Uh, We're strictly there to pray and to worship. And then at the end of the prayer walk, we simply invite people into ongoing ministry. And those four areas are sidewalk outreach. So we train people to be out on the sidewalks. We have hundreds of people covering over 50 abortion clinics in the U.S. during the week. So when people are showing up for their appointments, there are Christians there speaking to them, offering them alternatives and solutions. Then we have hundreds of mentors trained in local churches. So when a mom chooses life, we connect her, if she chooses, to a mentor, and that church then is encouraged to throw that mom a baby shower and provide for the first two years of the child's life. We also do education on orphan care, so we partner with local DSS and foster care organizations, and we educate Christians on the need that's there. And then finally, we also offer post-abortive recovery, and we network with post-abortive recovery Bible studies that are being done all around the U.S. and pregnancy care centers and local churches. And I just want to take that moment to say to you, I, I realize that I've done this enough that there may be some here today who you are the only one who knows that you've been involved in abortion in some way, whether you had the abortion, you paid for the abortion, you dropped off a daughter, a granddaughter for an abortion, whatever it is. And I want you to know that abortion is not the unforgivable sin. The Bible says whoever confesses and forsakes their sin finds mercy. And there is not only mercy available for you, but there is healing and restoration available for you as well. And uh, if you uh, are wanting to know how you can get connected, I didn't even know this, we have a, a, a lady on our staff, her name is Stephanie, she's had three or four abortions in her past. She's the resident expert on all the different studies that are out there for healing and restoration. There is all kinds. Whatever your situation is, if you just remember uh, lovelife.org slash restored life, that's lovelife.org slash restored life, you can anonymously reach out and, and speak to Stephanie 
and uh, she'll help you as you are ready down your path of healing and restoration. Uh, so that's what we do in a nutshell. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have an official Love Life location here in this area, but we have an initiative called House of Refuge that any church can become, regardless of whether there's an official Love Life location there, and that's what I want to share with you today. Before I get into the details of House of Refuge, I want to kind of lay a theological foundation for why we would do this and why we would take a Sunday to even talk about this, why this should matter to us as followers of Jesus. And I think it's important because our world is talking about it. It's a very controversial topic. But the reality is, is that what we see manifesting in the political realm is really a manifestation of a, it's a proxy war in the spiritual realm. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Satan loves the destruction of the image of God in human beings. And this is very much a spiritual issue. And one of the people that is really overlooked in this discussion is God. You see, we often talk about the mother, and we should, and we often talk about the baby, and we should, but I would submit to you today that really the primary person involved in the discussion of abortion is God Himself. And we should be asking not what our politicians think, and we should not be asking, uh, you know, what, 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 do we, what do our peers think? We should be asking, what does God think? What does God say about this? How does this issue impact God? What is God's heart on this matter? I'm well aware the word abortion is not in the Bible, but there's plenty of Scripture that we can look at to understand the Father's heart for people and understand the Father's heart for children. And so I want to do that with you this morning. Now, normally I would love to preach a text, and I know Pastor Michael preaches exegetically from the Bible. This is not going to be that message today. This is going to be very topical, um, but uh, it is rooted in the Scripture. And so I want to just talk briefly about God's heart and perspective on this. And first of all, I just want to remind us of God's purpose in creation. So when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, I just had the amazing privilege of meeting Ken Ham uh, uh, this week, actually, in Kentucky and being at the Creation Museum. They have a beautiful Sanctity of Life exhibit in there that just is mind-blowing. And uh, I've always appreciated Ken Ham's uh, convictions and understanding that so much of how we view the world is shaped by the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And so I want to start in Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God makes human beings different from the animal kingdom. Amen? We, we have been indoctrinating students for years in this country that they're no different than the animal kingdom. That we evolved as a result of primordial soup in millions and millions of years and random chance and processes, and it's no wonder we see the chaos and the destruction in our world when we've been telling students for years that they're no different than the animal kingdom. But we are made different from the animal kingdom. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And God breathed His life into Adam and the man became a living being. Different and distinct from the animals. And we know that God made us for His glory. So God makes an image bearer in His glory, takes from His side someone to complete Him, and man and woman were made in God's image for God's glory. And what does He tell them to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? More human beings made in His image for His glory. 
This is God's purpose. God wants the world full of image bearers, full of boys and girls, full of people made in His image who love God and reflect what He's like and glorify Him. That's God's purpose in creation. But then we also see Satan's greatest joy in the very next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, where Satan perverts that. And even though Adam and Eve are in fact made in God's image and likeness, what does Satan say to them? God knows if you eat of this, you will be like Him. Not made in His likeness, you'll be like Him and you'll be able to determine for yourself good and evil. And Satan changes the order of of, of saying simply that you can be someone who's made in the image of likeness of God, who lives under God's authority and submits to what God says is right and wrong, but instead you can be like a God yourself, determine right and wrong for yourself and do your own thing. And what happens in the very next chapter of the Bible? Cain believes his life is more valuable than his brother's. And he takes his life. How does that happen? Well, when you believe that you're your own God and you get to determine right and wrong for yourself, you can make decisions like that. You can determine someone else's value and make yours more and take someone else's life. And we see the destruction of the image of God up until the point in Genesis chapter 6 where it's like it's on full tilt wickedness and the thoughts of man are continually evil and wicked and God has to reboot the whole system. And this is what happens when we reject living under God's authority and under God's good rule and reign and being His reflection and image bearers in the land and we want to be our own gods. I want to remind you this morning of God's heart for children. And this is so key because in American culture, even if you just take the issue of abortion out, which, which abortion is like, that's like the foundation of how we get into a world that minimizes the value of other human beings. But just even think about how even in the church we talk about kids. And, and do we really value children or do we see them as an inconvenience and they're difficult and they cost a lot of money and, you know, and all these things? And, and do we really have God's heart for children? You see, Pastor Michael just read in Psalm 139 that children are knitted together in their mother's womb and they are known by God. Before they take their first breath outside of the womb, they're known by God. They're named by God. God has a plan for them. God has a destiny for them. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, before you were born, I set you apart in the womb to be a prophet. This is the Father's heart for children. God knows us before we're born. He knits us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Can you imagine how the world would be if every person really believed that every other person, not just themselves, we love to talk about ourselves as being fearfully and wonderfully made, but, but your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate, your teammate, the people you don't like, they're fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image as well. And every person is born intrinsically with incredible worth and incredible value and should be treated with great honor and dignity, even to the point where God says things like, you out of your mouth come blessing and cursing and you talk about people made in the image of God and He calls that sin. Just talking 
gossiping about people, slandering people. God addresses partiality and says, if, if you treat the rich man and you tell him to come in and sit in this prominent seat and the poor man comes in and you tell him to sit over there, he says, you've, be, you've, become, you've made value judgments. You've become judges in your hearts, sinful, wrong. Why is that? Listen, if we're all the result of evolution and we're all here because of random chance and circumstances, all that stuff's normal behavior. That's might makes right, survival of the fittest, that's normal behavior. But if we're made in the image of God, equally valuable and treasured and loved deeply by God, then we're called to a higher standard of how we view and treat other people. Amen? Yes. Children are a blessing. Psalm 127, verse 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a blessing. They're a reward. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Blessed. Blessed. Parents, today, if you're here with children, you are blessed. Dad, you're a blessed man because you have been given the gift of a child. Michael, thank you for speaking to the reality of miscarriage this morning. Oftentimes that's overlooked, and it's a very real reality. My wife and I, in between Caitlin and Samuel, my wife miscarried three times uh, in a row. A very uh, difficult circumstance and situation. The Lord used it incredibly in our marriage. It really reshaped and redefined our whole marriage. And um, in 2008, I was preaching in a prison in Africa, and the deputy officer in command looked at me. Uh, we were sharing our stories. He said, we couldn't have kids. We prayed and cried out to the Lord. He gave us a son, and we named him Samuel. And I told him what was going on with us, that we had three miscarriages. My wife sold all her baby stuff. She didn't want to try anymore. And he said, if you pray and cry out to the Lord, he's going to give you a son, and you're going to name him Samuel. And uh, Samuel is sitting on the front row here. And uh, so, by God's grace, uh, you know, he was, he was gracious to us in giving us the blessing of another child. And uh, if you're here today struggling uh, with wanting a child and wanting to have a child, uh, I, just, I know the Lord sees you. I, I don't know the answers, but I know the Lord sees you. And the cross convinces us that He loves us. We don't get all the answers on this side of eternity, but He sees you. He's with you. Children are a blessing. They're a reward. They're a heritage. Psalm 8, verses 2 reminds us, it says, out of the mouths of babes and infants, God has ordained what? Praise. God has ordained praise out of the mouths of babes and infants. Jesus had much to say about children. Jesus said that uh, when in regards to children, He says, such is the kingdom of heaven. He told His disciples, if you want to get into heaven, you've got to become like one of these little children. He said, whoever receives one of these little children receives Me. He said, don't hinder the children from coming unto Me. And then finally He said, by the way, if any of you harms one of these little children, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around, hung around your neck and to be cast into the sea. The Bible is not unclear about how God feels and thinks about children. He loves them. They're a part of His plan for His glory in creation. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, God gives a heart-wrenching rebuke of Israel, of the people of God. I had, I'm sure I had read this before, but being in the work that I've been in for the last four years, this, this passage had landed on me differently and, and had taken on a different meaning and just 
hearing the strong language, but hearing God's heart in the midst of it. And it says this, this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel to His people, not the pagan nations, but to His people who were taking their children and they were, sacrif- they were literally sacrificed. They would take a, a statue of Molech and they would superheat it with fire and they would take their children and lay them on this altar as a sacrifice to Baal and Molech, believing that by doing so they would be given prosperity and blessing and protection. And I promise you that same spirit back then is the same spirit today. We don't have superheated uh, statues. We have RU486, the abortion pill, and we have Planned Parenthood and private abortion clinics, but it's the same spirit. That's why I'm talking to you about this because our minds have been framed into thinking and buying into all of the political rhetoric that surrounds this, and I want you to see the heart of God and the spiritual battle that's at place for people and get the Father's heart for people. And listen to what he says. Furthermore, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me. God is saying this. You took your baby boys and your baby girls that were born to me. So how does God view our kids? As His. That's a sobering reality for every parent in this room. You know, I mean, in the moments of frustration and discipline and all these things and just in how we view our own kids, like these are God's baby boys and baby girls. You took your children whom you born unto me and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your obscene practices a trivial matter? You slaughtered my children and you offered them to idols by making them pass through the fire. And besides all your abominations and obscene practices, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. God says, you've forgotten your own childhood, your own birth, your own journey to get to this place. How could you turn around and take my kids and offer them to sacrifices as food? This is the Father's heart for children. And when you look at the whole of Scripture and God's purpose in creation and His heart for people, do you think that God is buying into the culture's lie that it's okay to destroy life in the womb because it's her body and her choice? Do you think that God is buying into the lie that it's just a clump of cells? Because Christians are saying this. Christians are saying the same thing that the world is saying. And we have to view our world through the lens of the Scriptures and how God views the world and how God's created the world to work and to flourish. Proverbs 24, verses 10-12 through 12 says this, If you falter in time of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those who are being led away to death and hold back those who are staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we didn't know anything about this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? Now, for a really long time, pastors, some pastors have been willing to wade into these waters. Your pastor is one of them, and I thank God for that. But where we have failed as pastors oftentimes is we deliver a message like this and remind ourselves of the reality of abortion in our world and what's taking place. Over 60 million babies have been aborted since 1973. 
2,363 babies are aborted every day, or yes, every day in America, around our nation, and the numbers around the world are even more staggering. And then we end the sermon, and, and, and it's, you know, we go to lunch, and we go about our regular day. And, and I want to actually give you something practical that you can do. And that was the gift to me as a pastor. You see, I had been to the abortion clinic in Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. You, you would think, man, we're right smack in the middle of the Bible Belt. You, you would not believe that that abortion clinic in Charlotte is the busiest abortion clinic in the southeast. They do more, more abortions there than in Atlanta and in Florida. And now, even now, since Roe has been overturned, those numbers are increasing because women from out of state are coming in. Uh, these people know how to market. They know how to use Google and Facebook and all of these things to, to draw women in. And we, we, I had been to this abortion clinic, and I remember it being very heavy and dark. This was before Love Life existed, and the thought never occurred to me, I should bring my people here. Like, it was a terrible place to be. And then a few years later, I got invited back, and, and uh, Love Life was there, and, and they gave a preview for pastors, and I left there saying, I have to bring my people here. And the difference was, was, yeah, it was the same dark experience, but Love Life gave me something practical that I could do with my church, and the stories of what God was doing because Christians were there blew my mind. I could talk to you for hours of story after story after story of transformation of how God supernaturally intervenes in the lives of these moms who think they have no hope and have no way out. And because Christians are there, God shows up through them and their lives are completely transformed. Even the workers, the, one of the managers at the abortion clinic in Charlotte, she was the manager for 10 years. She helped them start other abortion clinics. Her niece came to have an abortion. She changed her mind. She got connected with one of our mentors in a local church, and the church threw her a huge baby shower. Her aunt, who was the manager of the abortion clinic, showed up at the church and saw how the church was loving her niece. For a straight year, she started sending moms out of the abortion clinic, telling them that the people outside weren't a bunch of crazy nut jobs and would actually help them because they were helping her niece. And finally, on our 40th week of prayer, she quit, walked out of the clinic during our prayer walk, hugged the people on the sidewalks, and has never gone back into the abortion industry. And now she caters events for us and cooks meals for us and stuff like that. Her life has been transformed. She said, we all wear blue shirts for our prayer walk. She said, when I saw those blue shirts, it reminded me of heaven. And I knew I couldn't keep doing this. You see, we got to show up. I'm going to give you a way that you can show up here locally and it's called House of Refuge. And I have a video that I want to share with you that explains what House of Refuge is and actually shares a story of a precious young couple in our church uh, that happened not too long ago. So Ken, if you'll roll that first video. rejected their help and gone through with having abortions. 
And not only do I work for Love Life, but I am also a pastor. I'm an elder at a local church. And I remember thinking, is this happening in our church? And if it is, what can we do to prevent it from happening? How can we clear the air and remove the obstacles? You see, CareNet did a survey with LifeWay a few years ago and discovered that about 40% of women that had had an abortion did so while they were attending church at least one time a month, meaning they did not consider the church to be a safe place to run to, but instead went to the abortion clinic. And so when you look at that survey, one of the biggest reasons they list there is the fear of being ostracized, gossiped about, kicked out. And so what if we could create a safe place and create what we call household refuge all over the United States where pastors and that needs to change. And so our heart behind this is, right now the church is seen as a, as a place that, that is to be run from when these kind of situations happen. And we want to change the culture where there are literally thousands of houses of refuge around the nation that a mom could go online if she's looking for an abortion and put in a zip code and see there's 10, 15, 20 house of refuge churches in my community that I could go to right now for help. And they're ready to help. And so that's the heart is not only women in our churches, but even outside in our community. One of the amazing things is, is because we read this statement, we talk about this as a regular rhythm in our church, we hear all kinds of stories of our people engaging where they live, work, and play when these situations pop up. This week, two women in our missional community were, were pleading with a mother who had an appointment to have an abortion this, uh, yesterday in Asheville. And we're still waiting to hear what she ultimately decided, but... If we didn't talk about this and we weren't a part in these rhythms, I really think our people would keep quiet. They would not feel comfortable about how to engage and how to say, hey, our church is a house of refuge. We'll walk with you. We're not just saying, hey, don't do that. And then we're, you know, we, we wash our hands of the situation and we don't get involved. We have foster care families in our church. We have people who have gone through post-abortive healing. And, and God has done this all by simply, hey, we talk about this. We're not afraid. We're going to say what God says. We also want to help those who have had an abortion. I'm low on time, but uh, if you go on our YouTube page, if you go Love Life Charlotte on YouTube, you can see uh, Shailene's incredible story of how God has brought restoration in her life. And uh, man, just the stories of folks who were hiding for years in their churches. The pastor doesn't know, the husband doesn't know, carrying all of this on themselves. And again, because of just taking these moments to declare what God says, God brings redemption and restoration. And finally, we want to position the church as a place for people in our communities to run to. Uh, we believe that ultimately abortion will be ended through the church, not through politicians. Now, politicians will play a role, but they won't play a role and they won't be challenged and convicted to play a role unless the church is activated and engaged. And that's why I love our ministry and the heart of our ministry. We had a woman in California say a few, uh, a little over a year ago, she said, before I started getting involved with Love Life, I was a dead Christian. I hardly read my Bible. I hardly prayed. Now I read my Bible every day. I pray all the time. I'm seeing God use me, do miracles through my life, and it's because the church is getting activated. And so I want to actually read the House of Refuge statement to you and uh, share with you what it says. Uh, and uh, I want you to know that Pastor Michael and and the leadership here are, uh, before they made a decision about becoming a house of refuge, wanted me to come and share with you all so you know what it is. And uh, our prayer is that you guys uh, will become. 
a House of Refuge statement, uh, not a statement, House of Refuge Church. Um, do you have the statement, Michael? I had it on my laptop here, and now it is gone, so y'all bear with me one second. This is dead air. This is terrible dead air time. Michael, I don't know if you, maybe you were supposed to read it or what, but I can't find it now. I'll tell you in a nutshell what the House of Refuge statement says. It's very simple. It's, it's meant to be read. Thank you. You are Johnny on the spot. Here's what it says, and uh, this is what we're asking you guys as a church to consider, and this is what we do as a church family. We really say this more than two times a year. We do it more than two times a year just because it's just a part of the rhythm of our church, and, and I promise you nobody's banging on a pulpit with veins popping out of their net, neck angry about abortion. We're motivated by the love of Jesus and how we address this issue. It says this, our church, the name of the church is a house of refuge, and this applies to everyone in this church or people that you know that need a safe place. Here's what we believe. If you find yourself in an unplanned pregnancy or a crisis pregnancy, please know that being pregnant is not a sin and the child you carry is not a punishment. It is a blessing. God is knitting this child in your womb. You may have made a sinful decision that led to this pregnancy, or you may have even been sinned against, but we want you to know that you are loved, and we will do whatever it takes to help you carry and care for this precious child before and after birth. We can never support or encourage a woman to have an abortion because the child you carry is made in the image of God and is intrinsically valuable and loved by God. So you need to know how we will respond. First, here's what we won't do. This church family will not gossip about you, shame you, or abandon you. This is a house of refuge, and we will not allow the family of God to harm one another with words or actions contrary to the love of God as revealed in His Word. Here's what we will do. We will do everything in our power to remove whatever obstacles stand in the way of you having this child. There are people in this church ready to mentor you, throw you a baby shower, and connect you with resources inside and outside of our church. One of the things that we include in our training is we highly encourage churches to connect with their local pregnancy resource center to work together. And that's a blessing to the pregnancy centers as well because they need all the help they can get. We will also hold men accountable for living out their calling to provide and protect women and children. Finally, if you have ever had an abortion in your past, we want you to know that abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Whoever confesses and forsakes their sin finds mercy. If you have never gone through a post-abortion Bible study, we will be happy to connect you to one so that you can walk in complete healing and freedom. That's the House of Refuge statement. So we ask churches to read that at least twice a year and then appoint a rep and we have training for that rep to equip you guys to know how to respond when women come forward. And I'll just tell you, it will happen. Just this week, we had a church in Delville, Virginia, raise their hand and say, we want to be a house of refuge. And within days, a mom showed up at the abortion clinic in, Mar in Charlotte from Martinsville, Virginia. I'm, not Delville, Danville. It was in Danville, which is near Martinsville. Uh, and, and chose life, and we were able to connect that mom with that brand new House of Refuge church just a few days after they signed up. When you say yes, God will use your yes to make a difference in people's lives. And there is nothing like it. I'm telling y'all, when you get to hold a baby in your arms, 
that you knew had a, a different destiny at one point, there is nothing like that feeling when God uses you uh, in that way. And uh, so it really is a starting point when that happens. We, we can train people in the church to be mentors. If you have a burden to go out to your local, there's two abortion clinics within the general area here. We, we have uh, full-blown training courses to equip people to be able to go out to their local abortion clinic and, and not scream and yell, but uh, effectively engage. We've seen over 4,000 babies saved since 2016. We're approaching 5,000 babies saved. We've worked with over 800 churches around the U.S. And uh, I'm just telling y'all, when, when you show up, God shows up and he does miracles. And so can I pray for us? And then I'll be here uh, for a while and happy to answer any questions, pray with you, whatever I can do to be a blessing to you. Uh, I'm happy to do that. So Father, thank you for the Seaford Baptist family and, and for Pastor Michael and Katie. And uh, Lord, I pray your blessings upon this church because I know their heart is for you and, and their heart is your heart. And so I pray that you would use them in this city for your glory. I pray that you would use them to reach the lost. I pray that this would be a safe place of grace and healing and restoration uh, for people to uh, not hide sin. It doesn't even have to be abortion, but the reality is, is, is the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And, and I pray, God, that this church would continue to be a place where people feel safe to bring their sin into the light so that it can be killed, that sin can be done away with, and there is healing and freedom and joy as we walk with you in obedience. And uh, so bless this church family, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.